Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra with me, Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Well, this week we've seen a significant development in the long-running climate and energy war raging in Australian politics, at the federal level anyway. State governments on both sides have been largely getting on with it for some time. After brandishing a lump of coal in Parliament as a taunt to Labor and flirting with using government money to directly invest in new coal-fired power generation, when no Australian bank would touch it with a barge pole, Scott Morrison has affected another shape shift recently, dumping new coal, switching his affection to gas, while outlining a series of potential energy sources and manufacturing changes aimed at the desirable double of baseload electricity while driving down carbon dioxide emissions. And it's been a week for climb downs, really, it seems, because the government has also announced that it will invest multiple billions in connecting up some 7 million premises to the NBN using fibre after all in order to deliver proper fast broadband. So Labor's original vision for fibre to the premises will become a reality anyway, this after more than a decade of useless political combat in which we were told copper to the home was just fine. No wonder people don't trust politicians. But it's the energy emissions changes we're discussing here today with one of the nation's top experts, Ken Baldwin. Professor Baldwin is a laser physicist based at the Australian National University, where he is also director of the ANU Energy Change Institute and deputy director of the Research School of Physics and Engineering. Welcome, Ken. Thanks very much, Mark. Now, Ken, just to be clear right off the top, you've been advising the government or playing some sort of uh, expert role for the government in the development of the policy changes that it's now putting out into the the public sphere? Well, certainly the government has been consulting widely regarding the uh, technology investment roadmap and uh, the uh, ANU Energy Change Institute has been playing its part in that. Uh, We've been uh, providing uh, discussion points into the document 
Uh, we've held a number of public fora on this topic and we'll be holding another one very soon uh, where we'll invite uh, Alan Finkel or one of the key players in the uh, technology roadmap uh, to present uh, the key points and to then discuss a number of these issues uh, with our experts here in the Energy Change Institute. Yeah, well, that's really uh, interesting to hear you say that. Those uh, those mechanisms, those consultative meetings and uh, the, the involvement of the Chief Scientist, Alan Finkel, are things that uh, Democracy Sausage listeners, I think, will be very interested in. So uh, just by way of flagging it, we'll certainly look forward to talking to you more uh, around that time, um, perhaps uh, perhaps we'll see if we can get the chief scientist along as well uh, to look at some of these issues. Um, but as you said, it's a technology roadmap that Minister Angus Taylor has unveiled, um, and that's really what we want to, I, I suppose, just go a little bit deeper into today. The, he's singled out five areas where um, where the government believes that uh, technologies are not yet mature, but where there is transformational possibility in these things. They are clean hydrogen, low-carbon steel and al- aluminium, electricity, energy storage, soil carbon, and uh, carbon capture and storage, CCS. So let's let's talk about them if we can. These are um, and and there's a lot of money that's going to be able to be directed towards these things, up to eighteen billion dollars, and we can talk about that as well. But can we just go through those clean hydrogen? Is that what is that for a start? And uh, what what is the um, and because a lot of people will think that doesn't really explain it. What is clean hydrogen as an energy source or a future energy source? Hydrogen, uh, of course, uh, is a a molecular gas. Um, It can be created by a number of different uh, processes. Uh, If we want to uh, look at completely renewable hydrogen, where we use renewable energy from solar and wind uh, to create electricity and then use that electricity through a process called electrolysis to uh, convert water into hydrogen and oxygen, Uh, then that's regarded as, uh, if you like, green hydrogen. Uh, But there are other means of producing hydrogen as well. And uh, while we're talking solar and wind, let me just say that uh, the technology investment roadmap has, uh, uh, you know, clearly identified these five areas, uh, including hydrogen production uh, as uh, as needing a boost going forward and then regards other areas being relatively mature. So coal, for example, Uh, conventional uh, gas systems, for example, solar and wind, for example. But that doesn't mean that things like solar and wind and other renewables are off the agenda because if you look in the next category down from the priority areas, you'll see advanced solar photovoltaics uh, in there. Solar is not standing still. The existing solar that we have in place in Australia and around the world now that is being installed is dominantly from Australian research back 30 years ago. This field is continuing to move. There will be new advances, and I think the technology roadmap recognises that those advances will continue, so that's why it has this second tier of, uh, of uh, photovoltaics uh, using advanced technology that could be boosted up into the priority level tier in the future if that was uh, deemed appropriate. So let's just make the point at the beginning that solar is not out of the picture completely yet. So that's renewable hydrogen. Hydrogen can also be made from uh, fossil fuels. It can be made from natural gas, uh, a process called steam methane reforming, which produces carbon dioxide as one of the byproducts. 
And if you are going to make this process uh, completely clean and green, you then have to do something with the carbon dioxide. You have to turn it into something else and lock it up, or you have to store it underground in a deep geological repository, uh, which is uh, where carbon capture and storage is uh, is mainly focused uh, with this type of process. Uh, then you can also make it from coal. Again, the same problem. You produce CO2 as a byproduct, and you again have to use carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and use and make something else useful out of the carbon and lock it up as well. So those are the choices, and uh, obviously renewable hydrogen is the goal. Uh, because uh, there is uh, no uh, uh, emissions resulting from that process. Uh, And what we have to remember is that when we are talking about carbon capture uh, in uh, in the process of making hydrogen from either methane or coal, that so far nobody has demonstrated 100% carbon capture for any process, whether it's from a a coal-fired power station or from uh, an industrial process. So inevitably, there will be some fugitive carbon dioxide emissions, no matter how hard we try in making these other products. And until someone demonstrates 100% CCS for any given process, uh, then we always will take that carbon hit and that will be factored into the market value of hydrogen produced by these processes. So hydrogen itself as a fuel uh, produces no emissions. Other Correct. Water, I think. But creating hydrogen, producing hydrogen itself, uh, the, you know, the, the goal is to do it with solar and wind. Ideally, if you can do that, then there are no emissions from that as well. Correct. Yeah, so that, that seems logical, but it also is... Somewhat theoretical in the sense that um, it's some way off being done at scale, is it not? It's some way off being done at scale at a price that will compete with hydrogen produced from fossil fuels. Is it possible to produce it with fossil fuels, say gas, the the, the PM's new uh, best friend? Um, Is it possible to produce it with gas, bearing in mind carbon capture and storage, incomplete though it may be, at a reasonable price with significantly reduced emissions? So nobody has yet demonstrated, first of all, 100% carbon capture and storage, and secondly, carbon capture and storage at scale in a hydrogen production plant. Uh, Indeed, it's uh, not been demonstrated at scale in a fossil fuel power station, although there are a number of projects around the world looking at doing this. Uh, I think that uh, what we are seeing is that industry are actually voting with their feet and moving away from it. It's a big investment to make. Uh, There are huge costs associated with it. It is not guaranteed to capture every molecule of carbon dioxide. And when they go to the banks and ask for money to do this at scale, the banks will simply ask, what is the carbon price going to be in five, ten years' time that makes this worthwhile? Uh, And if the the generating company uh, doesn't have an answer to that, uh, then the banks won't provide the uh, the finance to uh, to build these massive infrastructure projects that will last decades. Uh, given that within a decade, many of these coal-fired power stations and other fossil fuel uh, production lines will be moving over to fossil fuel-free forms of production anyway. So this represents a very poor return on investment if we're talking a decadal time frame rather than a many decadal time frame. Now, I have, I've listed these in, in no particular order. The next one I have listed is low-carbon steel and aluminium. 
obviously uh, producing steel is and aluminium is uh, is an incredibly energy intensive business uh and so the goal is to be able to produce what what some people are calling green steel or clean steel and aluminium um can you speak to that yes aluminium uh, first because it's the easiest to deal with so aluminium is essentially uh converted from uh aluminium oxide or bauxite uh, in a high temperature process. You can get that high temperature simply by using electricity. Uh, so as long as you use renewable electricity from solar and wind, uh, then aluminium can be made green very easily. Uh, and that's the big challenge to establish sufficient generating capacity in solar and wind to drive these massive aluminium smelters uh, and provide them with electricity pretty much 24-7 uh, because the process is much more effective and uh, and economic if you run these things flat out most of the time. Yes, I've heard that if some and some of them are, are, are so dependent on that continuous electricity supply that if they went offline, they effectively uh, become uneconomic to start up again. Indeed. And, you know, you don't want to uh, turn the power off completely, otherwise you'll end up with solid aluminium clogging up the works. So... Mm. Uh, many of these uh, smelters offer contracts uh, um, that have built into them opportunities to turn down the wick, if you like, every now and then when the electricity company uh, needs it to, uh, when demand is high from other sources. And uh, this uh, form of demand response is a valuable bargaining tool for the smelter when they deal with the electricity company. Uh, but nevertheless, you don't want to do this all the time and it becomes uneconomic to do it too often and certainly you don't want to turn the plant off completely. So that's aluminium. It can be turned green simply by using renewable energy for the electricity supply. Green steel is a different story. So many people don't appreciate that uh, that, that steel uses a lot of coal, not just to create high temperatures, but also as part of the uh, process of turning iron ore into steel. There is carbon embedded in the steel, so that's what's needed. And indeed, it requires a, a, a different type of coal, known as coking coal, for this process to uh, create steel in a blast furnace. So you have, That's very high-grade coal, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, so you have this coking coal going in, you have iron ore going in, uh, a few other small um, uh, components, but basically it's, it's, it's coking coal and iron ore. And uh, then you have steel coming out. And the big problem with this, of course, is that burning the coal and uh, creating the heat and, and providing this uh, source of carbon uh, is going to emit carbon dioxide as a result. So there are huge uh, industrial research and prototyping activities going on around the world to develop forms of steel production that don't produce greenhouse gas emissions. One of these is to use hydrogen. So hydrogen is the replacement for the carbon part of the steel production process when it comes to pulling out the oxygen from the iron ore. Iron oxide is what is put in. So you need something to pull the oxygen away from the iron. Carbon is used to do this under a normal blast furnace operation, but you can use hydrogen to take its place and pull the hydrogen, uh, sorry, pull the oxygen out using the hydrogen and creating water as a byproduct. This has zero greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, and hence it's called green steel. Wow. Now, <laughs> I'm quite fascinated by that. <laughs> so, so, so this is this is something that is a, a reality. There are prototypes that are doing this, uh, particularly in Europe. 
And uh, these are looking to be scaled up so that we can simply replace existing blast furnaces with uh, new forms of uh, steel production based around hydrogen as the reducing agent. If this comes to fruition, then there will be a clear market for green hydrogen because you don't want to use hydrogen that's been produced and emitted carbon dioxide if you're going to produce green steel. Mm, defeats uh, the purpose so a bit. It defeats the purpose. So what there will uh, be is a, is a market for green hydrogen specifically for the steel industry to create green steel. And this is a real prospect and it begs the question. In Australia, we have some of the world's best renewable energy resources to produce completely green electricity. We have some of the best iron ore reserves in the world happening to be right next door to the best renewable energy resource up in the northwest of the country. If we are to uh, provide both the energy supply and the raw material for the steelmaking process at the same site, and if we don't have the disadvantage of high labour costs because this uh, type of process going forward is going to be a very low labour intensity industry, then we might find ourselves in a place where we were many decades ago where we might be competitive once again in the world's steel production market. Indeed, we may not even necessarily have to go all that way. We might simply be able to turn the iron ore into iron and sell it as a product called hot briquetted iron to steel producers around the world who might then add the value down the supply chain to produce steel and highly specialised products arising from that steel. So there is a major opportunity for Australia to do something which it has rarely done, which is to add value to its mineral exports directly in this country. And this is why green steel and also green aluminium are very important when it comes to looking at opportunities to invest in new technology developments because this could completely transform our export industries. And this is something that we're very keenly uh, researching here in the Energy Change Institute. We have a grand challenge called Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific. And we have two streams of that. One is hydrogen fuels and the other is green steel and green aluminium, where we're looking to combine the hydrogen generation from renewable energy with the steel production prospects from our enormous mineral reserves. Fascinating stuff. The next one is um, uh, of those five priority areas is um, energy storage, uh, electricity storage, presumably. Um, this is uh, batteries, uh, presumably pumped hydro. That that's obviously an area where there uh, there's ongoing you know developments. Batteries are getting more effective, more efficient, um, and and cheaper. Uh, and governments around the world are, are looking at the way they can be used to stabilise the system, but it's not a proven uh, source of, of, of baseload power at this stage uh, at times when, for example, if you're using renewable energy and the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, there's a limited capacity in those batteries. So uh, what are they looking to, what are they looking to uh, you know, uh, progress here in terms of the, 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 the investment Outcome. Yes, well, you've identified two of the, the key areas for energy storage, uh, that is electricity storage, and that is batteries and pumped hydro. Uh, dealing with pumped hydro first, so by and large, the technologies around pumped hydro are very mature. So we're talking about uh, building a small dam at the top of the hill, a small dam at the bottom of a hill, uh, filling them with water, 
uh, through uh, natural uh, rainfall uh, processes and then building a pipe between them with a uh, electricity turbine at the bottom and then pumping water uphill at times when electricity is cheap and plentiful and then letting the water flow downhill through the pipe, through the generator and making electricity at times when it's scarce and expensive. So that's off-river pumped hydro. The technology is mature, but there are many things that we need to uh, do in order to make this become a reality. And this is indeed one of the key contributions here of the ANU, which is to look at the best prospects for off-river pumped hydro, to do surveying, to analyse uh, geospatial information, to establish where the best places are to put these off-river pumped hydro dams. Uh, and so this has been a major project uh, here in the Energy Change Institute and indeed we are world leaders in prospecting. So we look around the world at different locations and can give you information very quickly on the real opportunities for off-river pumped hydro wherever it may be. So This is a really fascinating area too. Is, is this, um, I mean, presumably you're looking for places that have the, the topography that would support it and you need to have higher ground and lower ground, you need to have water supplies. You need to have the geology, which I would, would I presumably which make would make it possible, rather than mountain ranges that are impossible to uh, to put tunnels through and and those sorts of things. What else? Uh, you've got to take into account the social aspects. So these geospatial information surveys that are being done here at ANU involve looking at whether the site is in a national park, whether it's close to a residential area or an industrial area, uh, what is the uh, the land value uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, having uh, areas that are already built on are going to be very uh, problematic. Uh, so uh, it looks at a whole range of uh, social issues and economic issues as well as the issues around topography, geology, et cetera, et cetera. Can the Snowy Hydro Scheme, is, uh, you know, which, as you say, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of this technology which is mature in that sense, Snowy Hydro schemes, uh, you know, many decades old, can that be used, the existing system used uh, in in this capacity, i.e. by pumping water back up to the top reservoir before it is sent down? Yes, indeed. And, and let's make the point here that uh, nobody is going to build another dam like the any of the Snowy Mountains dams on a river uh, simply because... In Australia, water is scarce, but also, more importantly, because of the environmental considerations. And so... Because the snow is not what it was downstream, is it? Indeed. So, uh, you know, we just have to look at the environmental flow issues through the Murray-Darling Basin to realise that uh, that is never going to happen. However, uh, we already have existing dams, and these dams in the Snowy Mountain schemes are ideally situated to be able to pump from a dam which is lower down in the snowy scheme to a dam that is higher up in the snowy scheme and to go backwards and forwards between this tunnel and, and do exactly the same thing as you can do off-river. So this does not involve um, altering any flows in re- existing river systems that have not already been altered by the snowy scheme. Uh, so it's a good candidate. Uh, and indeed, it's a bit of a gorilla in the room. It's mm. so big. I mean, this is absolutely enormous uh, that it might put off investment in uh. some of the other off-river pumped hydro schemes around the country, uh, just simply waiting to see what the impact of Snowy 2.0 is going to be. Uh, we'll see what the market does in that regard, but already what we're seeing is other existing uh, pumped hydro schemes uh, like the the one in uh, Kangaroo Valley, like uh, Wivenhoe Dam up uh, in Queensland, they're already starting to look at how they might upgrade and augment their capabilities because they're now seeing this market developing for 
for large volume electricity storage. So this brings us back to batteries. As you say, batteries won't give us the volume of stored energy that Snowy 2.0 will give. They will never do that. Um, But batteries are incredibly useful because they can store energy and release it very quickly. They can respond in microseconds to a call for the need to generate electricity instantly. And this is incredibly useful, not just for being able to respond quickly to increases in demand, but mainly to stabilise the system. So as we know, we've got an alternating current electricity system in Australia. This alternating current system has a frequency of 50 cycles per second or 50 hertz. And this frequency has to be maintained within a range of, you know, of order a percent or so around that frequency uh, in order to keep things like motors running stably uh, and, and to have... Um, good voltage control is the other very important characteristic of the system. So these stabilisation services are often provided by massive spinning generators in coal and gas and hydro power stations. But as we go to more and more uh, renewable energy, which doesn't have the same sort of spinning inertia, then we're going to need other ways to help stabilise the Mm. AC frequency and the voltage on the grid. And batteries can help us do that because they can respond in fractions of a second, much less than one cycle of the AC current, uh, and stabilise the frequency. And they can do similar stabilisation for for voltage. So this is really important because if you look at the value, for example, of the big battery that was installed in South Australia, sure, it helped provide lots of reserve electricity at times when it was needed. But its biggest contribution and where it's made the most money is from frequency and voltage control services. So this will be the role for batteries in the future. So They'll they, help so tweak a, the system. Yeah, so they're a big enabler in a sense of um, of those new emergent but less sinuous uh, electricity supplies. That's right. So, so the, the, the less synchronous AC uh, supplies um, – uh, solar and wind will uh, will need batteries uh, to help provide some stabilization to the grid once we get close to one hundred percent renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, smart electronics can also help out in that regard, and we are getting even smarter at, at designing these systems, whereby we control through the inverter, uh, which is this the system in the in the electricity supply that takes direct current and turns it into alternating current where that can help stabilise the system as well. So all these technological advances are important and I think they will play a role in this technology investment roadmap in developing smart new systems, better batteries, more efficient batteries. And indeed, I would say that the jury is still out on which is the best battery to use going forward. So this is a very ripe area of research and development that uh, we can invest uh, this money in. Yes, and it's interesting just as a as sort of a, a pedestrian observation, if I can make it almost literally pedestrian observation, you can see in real time the, the sort of uh, development and sophistication of, of batteries with just the sheer number of electric bikes and, and, and scooters and things. The energy storage of those batteries now is so much greater, uh, giving those those personal mobility devices so much more range uh, then was the case even uh, even five years ago. That's right. Um, although Australians are very range-hungry people, I would suggest. <laughs> it's a big uh, place. It's a big place. You want to be able to drive from Sydney to Melbourne uh, and not have to um, spend hours and hours charging your battery up, this sort of thing. 
So this is part of the barrier to the take-up of electric vehicles in this country. And one of the alternatives is an electric vehicle actually, you know, is kind of agnostic as to where the electricity comes from. It can come from a battery or it can come from a hydrogen fuel cell, which is kind of like the reverse of the electrolysis process I described before. So you put hydrogen in, oxygen, make water in the process, uh, you produce electricity. And so a car that has an electric motor really doesn't care whether the electrons come from a battery or mm. from a hydrogen fuel cell. Uh, and so the advantage of the hydrogen fuel cell is longer distances for uh, operating the vehicle. So it addresses this range issue. Uh, the technology is a little bit more complex and involved. You've got to have a hydrogen tank and all the rest of it. But by and large, long-distance truck haulage, I think, in the future, will be dominated by hydrogen fuel cells. Unlikely that batteries will take that niche, but, you know, you never know. Research is uh, is a very strange thing. Um, but there'll, there'll be some battery there, presumably, as a reserve. Um, there, there will be a smaller one, perhaps, but yeah. Um, whereas I think, uh, you know, our normal uh, small domestic vehicles will uh, probably go down the battery route. Batteries will get better and better. We'll be able to go from, you know, point A to point B without having to charge up every, um, you know, couple of hundred kilometres. Hopefully it'll go out to, you know, 600 kilometres or something like that. Uh, and so I think the major market is going to be for long-distance haulage, uh, trucks and buses, that sort of thing, and uh, and you know uh, remote area operation of, uh, of of vehicles. Let's take a quick break and continue this very fascinating discussion. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were going through the uh, the five priority areas that the government has uh, unveiled in its technology roadmap. Uh, the next one, uh, Ken Baldwin, is soil carbon. That's the next, next one I, on my list, the way I've written them down, uh, soil carbon. Um, it sounds self-explanatory, but what is it really? Yeah, so this is a, an interesting way of capturing carbon dioxide from out of the atmosphere and storing it somewhere else, the somewhere else being in the ground, in the soil. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this is something that certainly uh, needs uh, research and development on. It's something that could contribute to drawing down the carbon dioxide that we've already put into the atmosphere. And, and it's a, an example of, uh, if you like, of carbon capture and use as opposed to carbon capture and storage, which is all about dumping CO2 into a big reservoir underground and keeping it there forever. Carbon capture and use is all about 
pulling carbon dioxide either directly out of the atmosphere or from a smokestack in an industrial process, might be a coal-fired power station, where you actually grab the CO2 being produced there and then turning the CO2 into something else. Angus Taylor made the point the other day at the press club that um, one of his points anyway was it's photosynthesis. This is what trees effectively do, right? They, they take carbon dioxide out Indeed. of there and store it in their, in their trunk. Uh, in their, that's in their, right. In their structure. Exactly. So that's a, an example of carbon capture and use if you promote the photosynthesis process above and beyond what it would have been otherwise and then utilise that stored carbon uh, as it decays uh, to creating um, you know, fertile ground uh, and to do that in a way that provides additionality to the system. It's no use just going around in circles, you know, like uh, you know, chopping a tree down, burning it, and then growing more trees in its place. This is all about capturing additional carbon that right. would not have been captured otherwise and storing it in the soil. So a good thing to do? Absolutely. Uh, are there better ways that we could do it? Certainly. We need to do the research and development to understand that. Will it make a big difference? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, it's not clear that this is actually going to be the solution, if you like, not that there are ever silver bullets, but this is certainly not a silver bullet solution for carbon capture and use. There are other possibilities, uh, for example, uh, creating uh, carbonates, uh, which use the carbonization or the carbonization process, grabbing carbon dioxide from smokestacks or from the air, uh, and putting that into something that uh, is a solid like calcium carbonate or magnesium carbonate and then using that as a product, for example, in cement. Uh, so the cement industry is a huge producer of emissions around the world. If we can find a way of uh, capturing CO2 and making cement in a green-friendly way, that would be a huge advance. And if we could do it by drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, even better. So this idea of carbon capture and use is very important. Soil carbon is a component of that, but I would suggest it's a relatively small opportunity in the big picture. Anyone who watches uh, Grand Designs would uh, would have seen Ken, Kevin McLeod uh, uh, fairly often refer to concrete or uh, cement uh, in in that in a fairly derogatory way because it, there is so much uh, um, carbon dioxide produced in its um, or emitted in its production. So. Yeah, hardly surprising. The final one, and you were talking about carbon capture and usage, the final one is CCS, carbon capture and storage. It's been politically charged as an issue mainly because for a long time it was seen to be more theoretical than possible. The government insists that it's being used all around the world. I mean, I think it obviously talks this up quite a lot. Um and, uh, and and on questions of whether it's actually being used at scale, how how efficient it is, how how it's working, um, you know, there are mixed opinions. But it certainly has come some way. A lot of money's been ploughed into this area, and in these five areas, they're talking about ploughing much more money into them. Uh, is carbon capture and storage a, a viable uh, reality now? And is it operating anywhere at scale? So let's break this down into the different ways of storing carbon dioxide because uh, there are different ways of producing carbon dioxide. One of the big areas that it is being used at in the moment is in the extraction of oil and gas from reservoirs underground. In these reservoirs, there is trapped carbon dioxide. This gets released into the atmosphere if you're not careful. 
and so there is a big effort going on in reusing this carbon dioxide that comes out. So you've got to separate it out from the natural gas, for example, that exists in these uh, big reservoirs. Uh, and then you pump this carbon dioxide basically back down into the ground into the same reservoir that you took out the fossil fuel. And this does two things. It stores it underground, hopefully, eventually. Uh, but secondly, it actually pushes out more of the fossil fuel that you were trying to extract anyway. So it's called, for example, enhanced oil recovery is a process like So it's like almost this. a bit like fracking. I mean, it cre- creates pressure to... It does, but within the reservoir. So it doesn't actually fracture the rocks. It just yeah. simply pumps CO2 back into the same reservoir that it was sitting in before and at the same time helps push out the other um, the methane one. gas and things that you want mm-hmm. from that reservoir. So that's one example of uh, carbon capture and storage. And if indeed we're still going to extract uh, gas and coal from these underground uh, reservoirs, uh, and we can stop the carbon dioxide being released in the atmosphere, we should absolutely do that. But this is a transition process. This is something that we're going to have to get rid of over the next few decades. We are not going to be using oil and gas in 2050. So eventually... So much uh, to tell the National Party. Well, uh, that's the deadline many countries are setting. Uh, so, so, so we are not going to be using oil and gas into the future. But... While we are and while we're still extracting it, we should absolutely do our utter best to try and capture that carbon dioxide and keep it in the ground. So that's one way of doing CCS. Then there's um, all the other ways, which, again, you can break down a bit. So there's the electricity sector, which burns gas and, and coal. And then there's industrial processes. Industrial processes are actually quite interesting because we're going to need a lot of these products anyway. We're going to need cement, as we've already discussed. We're going to need um, other industrial products such as ammonia, which are being produced at the moment um, using uh, natural gas and and other means. Uh, We're going to need lots of these industrial products and we're going to have to turn them green in the next few decades. While we're inventing new ways of making these products, and there are new ways, so we're well on the track to doing this in the case of ammonia using renewable hydrogen, we can do it already. While we're in the process of changing these industrial processes, we should absolutely again be capturing the carbon dioxide that we're we're creating if we can, um, or just simply phasing them out as soon as possible with new processes that produce the same end product we want to use but without making carbon dioxide. So again, I think there is a role for CCS to play there. And again, in the production of electricity, we uh, should be looking at trying to capture that as well. Here's the question. If you were going to add a carbon capture and storage facility to an existing coal-fired power station, for example, this is a big infrastructure project. You've got to grab the CO2 from the smokestack, separate it out from everything else. You've then got to compress it, liquefy it, transport it in a pipe, find a reservoir that won't leak over thousands of years, pump it in there and fill it to the point where it's um, it's captured and sealed off forever. So it ha- does that have to be stored under pressure so that it... It does, yeah. and often in liquid form. Mm-hmm. So the the question then is, is the investment in all that infrastructure going to be worth it if you're going to close that coal-fired power station in the next decade anyway? And when the banks look at carbon capture and storage projects like that, I think they'll say no. Mm. And they may even say no for these other industrial processes. They will say to the electricity generator, 
why don't you just close the coal-fired power station and build a wind and solar farm? It's going to be cheaper. We'll fund it. Even if you include the off-river pumped hydro that's needed and the extra transmission lines that are needed, it's still worth it. So come back to us with another proposal Mm. and we'll look at that. But we probably won't be funding your carbon capture and storage system on your ageing coal-fired power station that is probably going to close early because it's going to be outcompeted by solar and wind. And they may say the same thing to an industrial manufacturer. They may just say, well, what about this process of making, I don't know, ammonia using renewable hydrogen created by, uh, you know, the uh, electrolysis of water with renewable energy, drawing out nitrogen from the atmosphere in the already existing Haber-Bosch process of making ammonia and not producing carbon dioxide at all. Why don't you just build a plant to do that? Come back and we'll tell you whether we'll finance that. Uh, But maybe we won't just finance your ageing ammonia production plant simply to keep it going for another five to ten years and capture the carbon using carbon capture and storage infrastructure, which is going to cost you an awful lot of money with a very poor rate of return over a decade or so. Yes, well, that's that's all... That all makes a lot of sense. It's quite fascinating. Um, I guess all of this raises the question then, um, you know, going through those those five things and all the pros and cons and the possibilities, the government is going to uh, change the parameters of the uh, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA, the, uh, what is it, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Uh, it's going to change the, the guidelines of those two organisations so that this money can be directed into these areas. Will it work? Will it work fast enough? Or would we just be better off having had a carbon price, having going to a carbon price or an emissions trading scheme which has you know, a carbon price in it set by the market? Yes, yeah, so let's go up to the carbon price question in a minute. Um, the aim of the technology roadmap is to try and drive down the cost of carbon capture and storage to around $20 a tonne, at which point it might start to become viable, perhaps. You know, this is again an economic question for a particular circumstance, for a particular bank to decide. It might then become viable to retrofit some of these massive polluters at the moment with a $20 a tonne CCS system. Uh, that will keep them going and 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 stop uh, pollution. However, it has to do that 100%. It's no good having half the carbon dioxide going in the atmosphere and half going underground. And it has to be worthwhile on the timescale of the existence of this uh, power station or industrial process. If uh, it is $20 a tonne to actually create a carbon capture and storage system that will do that, is this still economically viable or is it still better to make a solar farm and a wind farm with a bit of storage and transmission and not even do it at $20 a tonne? That's going to be the question. Will the cost of renewables be driven down simultaneously to the point where $20 a tonne is not even a viable proposition for CCS? So that's that's an interesting question. Um, maybe we should still be looking at, at doing research in that direction. But, you know, this is going to become an economic issue rather than a scientific issue, I think, down the track. Now, let's get to the carbon price. We wouldn't be having this discussion, this entire discussion about the technology roadmap and other things if we had a carbon price. A carbon price would simply drive the economy in the right direction to research and develop new technologies and then implement them 
in a way that achieves these climate goals, which are reflected in the price of carbon. Mm. Uh, so certainly a roadmap would help. I, I, I would still suggest that having a roadmap would be a good idea, even under a carbon price, just to give hints at you know areas that might be prospective for Australia to contribute to, and then maybe make money by selling that technology overseas. Yeah, so that that's kind of picking winners really, um, but for a social for purpose, a social, for a social environmental purpose. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, so my view of the technology investment roadmap is it's probably a, a good thing to do anyway, even just Given to identify yeah. you know where the prospects are for Australia, and what areas Australian expertise in particular can or could contribute on a world market by selling widgets that do all these wonderful things to the rest of the world. That's probably a good thing to do no matter what, but a carbon price could be laid right over the top of that and drive this process so much more effectively and many other things as well. Is there a danger then that what might be sort of incrementalism in a sense, you know, this sort of uh, obviously the coalition has shifted some way from from its opposition to, you know, from, from sort of lauding coal and, and questioning the science and so forth. We're now, we're now seeing without explicitly having, uh, you know, a mere culpa, we're seeing policy that acknowledges the climate challenge very squarely. Mm. But is there a danger that with these things, many of which are years and years off, uh, our colleague here at ANU, Frank Yotto, uh, Professor Frank Yotto has said, Green steel is still 20 years away in his, in his view. And he says, we're not facing a modest long term problem. We have an immediate large scale problem, an immediate large scale problem. So I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a danger that this becomes the government's political story for how it's acting, but none of it's happening fast enough. And in doing so, we are missing the opportunity to act more quickly. Indeed, time is of the essence. There is no point in gilding the lily here. We are way behind as a world, as a, as a globe, the timetable that we need to uh, keep below two degrees. So if we are to reach that goal, we're not only going to have to keep on doing what we are at the same pace. We're going to have to accelerate the pace even more every year that we, we, we procrastinate in, in all these activities. And so Frank is right in the sense that very large-scale industrial processes do take time to effectively take over the market. But let's look at solar. I mean, 10 years ago, who would have said uh, that uh, solar is now the dominant form of electricity new generation installations around the world? Solar and wind together now eclipse fossil fuels in terms of world renewable energy installations. That would have been uh, only in the mind's eye of zealots in the solar industry 10 years ago, Mm. but it's become a reality. And I think that the same may be true of other revolutions and transformations that will be taking place, and they'll be driven largely by the revolution that's happened in the electricity sector. So new processes that simply use green electricity in new green production processes will be able to charge a premium for that, particularly if there's a carbon price. And that means that the transformation in the industries that build on renewable energy will happen more rapidly than they would have if there had been a fossil fuel component to the electricity they use. I guess that raises the question, you say, if there was a carbon price, 
it's been like the third rail in Australian politics. No one can touch it uh, as a result of what happened in that period, uh, you know, in the in the late 2010s. Um, and Labor's had, you know, and, and obviously Julie Gillard's experience with it and Labor walking away from it. I guess what you're saying, though, is that there's a possibility that with the the shifts that we've just been talking about in politics and the, the all of those shifts in technology and the economics of all of this, that it may come back because its logic may be much more obvious and uh, and the, the old opposition to it will have just simply been consigned to history. That's right. And, you know, just because something uh, is politically unpalatable for one side of politics or the other or even both simultaneously – doesn't mean it's a bad idea. <laughs> it just all. means that they don't think it's a great idea. Um, so let me um, let me put it another way. Let's remember back to the GST. Okay, that was political dynamite at mm. the time, mm. and it was the course of fracturing within the coalition, within Labor, between Labor and the coalition for many years. Then when it was eventually introduced, all the acrimony and the uh, unseemly debate that went on beforehand ceased overnight because everyone realised it was a good idea. They just needed somebody to implement it and then they could all go quiet and get on with the job. I think the same is true of a carbon price. I think that if a future government introduced a carbon price in this country, there would be uproar immediately beforehand and afterwards there would be silence. A final question then um, on the technological side because that's a, that's at least an optimistic view on the political side and, uh, you know, I remain pretty sceptical having reported on politics right through that period and, 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 and just seeing the sheer dumbness of some of those debates. But let's think about it on the technological side. You talked about before smart electronics and developments there. Is it possible also that as as we get towards uh, further towards this 2050 target that the globe has of net zero emissions um, and we see governments at the moment all over the place, ours included, dragging their feet on this question, is it possible that there'll be technological sort of almost revolutionary leaps forward that will facilitate or could facilitate the process anyway? I think if that, we look at... just far too hopeful? Yeah, I think if we look at... Um, the energy sector as an example, uh, certainly there has been a revolution happen in terms of what we use to generate electricity, how we direct it, how we um, can even tap into people's demand for electricity and say to them, look, if you turn your fridge off or your air conditioner for an hour just to help out at peak times, uh, we'll pay you money. Even economic and social concepts like that have revolutionised the way that we use energy. In fact, energy is going to look much more like the internet in the future and and we'll be using it like the internet. The customer will play a role in what happens. So I think that sort of revolution uh, is is important to understand how it happens uh, and it's also important to think about how long in advance we knew it was going to happen. Like I said, a lot of people are surprised at how much uh, the price of solar has dropped in the last decade or so. Uh, it's down by um, a factor of uh, 
I think the number is around 500 over 40 years, okay? So mm-hmm. I can't think of a product other than maybe uh, a microchip in a computer that, that has got as cheap as that over time. So these revolutionary things do happen and they do transform society. Do we know in advance that they're going to happen? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we understand that, you know, that there are certain options available to us in particular technology areas and that they will take a while to shift over to, uh, but we know that that pathway is there. And, you know, I think we can, in the electricity sector, you know, at this moment in time, say that, you know, the future is going to be dominated by solar and wind and nuclear in countries that allow it. Here it's prohibited by legislation. Maybe we ought to think about that as well. But it's probably going to be a mixture of solar, wind and nuclear for most countries with a few minor players on the side. In terms of industrial processes and all the other things that we need to do, well, electrification. If you electrify most things, you get rid of most of the emissions. Electric transport, uh, industrial processes that generate things like ammonia, all these things can be um, electrified. You can you know, have electric uh, blast furnaces for steel if you use green hydrogen. Mm. So if you electrify most of what we do, you're most of the way down the track because the electrification will give you green electricity. There are going to be some hard sectors, though, and that's going to be agriculture. It's going to be, you know, emissions from waste, all these things. Uh, And we really have to concentrate on what to do about those. But if you electrify everything else and you've got renewable electricity at your disposal, you've done three quarters of the job already. Excellent. It does remind me that at the last election, though, um, you know, one side of politics was saying that uh, Labor's plan to uh, have all, you know, 50% of new vehicle sales electric by 2030, uh, that this would result in the end of your weekend and the death of the Australian ute. <laughs> so, I mean, it all seems so absurd. Uh, hopefully, we're, we're getting past some of that really dumb politics. Um, if simply by the sheer weight of logic that you've uh, outlined here today, uh, Ken Baldwin. So uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us on Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny. I'll be back with uh, Democracy Sausage on Monday of next week. And until then, bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.